0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Standard Podcast. This is your host, Patrick Donahoe, and we are on episode six of Season two, where we are talking about uh, liberty and freedom today 's guest is John Tamney, and the interview I had with him was was fascinating he he just came out with a book. He has several other several other books, so definitely check him out on, on Amazon. Uh, but the most recent book is uh, called The End of Work, uh, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You the One You Love. Now, this is, this is a topic that we've mentioned on the podcast before, and I know it's on a lot of people's minds, which is the rapid pace at which our uh, society is evolving, especially when it comes to technology. Now, John is—you'll uh, you'll see that his his heart uh, is with economic freedom. He's a very uh, liberal, you know, high-regarded libertarian thinker, and that's how we approached the book. But I, you know, I am as well, and it wasn't this, you know, just dialogue back and forth of one another agreeing with each with with ourselves. It, it was a fascinating discussion because he helped me view things in a different light, and because of you know how uh, you know he thinks from an economic perspective, uh, as well as you know his experience with the other books that he's written, plus some of the roles that he plays. One of which is you know the director uh, of the Center for Economic Freedom at Freedom Works. Okay, he has a perspective that that you're going to find fascinating, and he talks about how the future is something to be uh, excited about, especially with. The rapid pace of uh, technological advancement. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, offer some some copies to uh, to you guys, to the listeners. If you guys uh, uh, will uh, just email us info at our sorry podcast at paradigmlife.net. Uh, and uh, that'd be that'd be amazing if you guys would uh, get the word out for him because this is a message that I would say is in contrast to uh, what I would assume is how uh, you know the, the governments and the politicians and, and policymakers uh, are forming their foundation which is universal basic income and as you'll remember a few you know a few episodes back you know this is last year right? I interviewed Andrew Yang who is actually running for president and has a totally different approach to this issue of how how quickly uh, there's you know how quickly there 's advancement in the technological space, so you're gonna find, you 're going to find know a different perspective here with John He bring, brings up some amazing points, but he 'll leave you with. The uh, the the hope or the feeling of hope that any technological advancement, how things are moving, uh, is actually going to improve uh, improve society. So I'm excited for you guys to learn from uh, from John. It was, uh, it was an amazing interview. Go check out thewellstandard.com for uh, links to uh, to John's social media. Uh, he he is an editor at Real Clear Markets. Probably the best way to find him. Uh, but John T- uh, Tamney T-A-M-N-Y, But uh, just go to to thewealthstandard.com and the show notes will have all of the uh, pertinent links so you can follow uh, follow him. So without further ado, John Tomney, the author of The End of Work, Why Robots Won't Take Your Job, and Might Get You the One You Love. Welcome to the 2018
1: seasons of The Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating life, liberty, and property. You are listening to Liberty Season 2.
0: It's, um, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome uh, a fascinating guest. I'm really excited for the interview. Uh, his name is John Tamney, and he is the director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks, and he's also the senior economic advisor to uh, Toreador Research and Trading. John, did I get that one right? Yes, you did. All right, awesome. And he's also an editor of uh, uh, Real Clear Markets. Now, John, you've written a number of books, And uh, the one in particular that has come out recently uh, called The End of Work, Why Robots uh, Won't Take Your Job and Might Get You the One That You Love. I think it's a fascinating topic because a lot of of books have been written uh, that, that really talk about universal basic income and also, you know, how it correlates to the rapidly evolving, uh, a rapidly evolving society. But before we kind of get into that, I would love to to know your story briefly about how you uh, gravitated toward a more, you know, libertarian, uh, free market, free market thinking or perspective.
1: Well, in terms of my perspective, it pretty much emerged from just uh, my belief that people should be free. I, I always like to say that um, I would be for economic freedom, even if you could prove to me that it, it made people worse off just because I think people should be free to do what they want. Uh, now the fact that um, the visible effects of economic freedom are so great, the fact that you can look at South Korea next to North Korea and see the obvious difference when people are free to to do as they want economically, that makes my argument or my passion for market economics even greater. Um, I see around me that the more that people prosper, the more that I'm better off. Um, it doesn't matter my income. When people get rich, my life, my living standard uh, soars. And so um, I'm also for free markets and, and, and limited government simply because I'm self-interested. I want people serving me and making my life better.
0: What you said, what you said is profound, but I, I would say it's, the, it's an atypical perspective than, than what exists today so could you maybe go a little deeper in the, the into the connection between you know a, a, a free market uh and, and personal uh or individual liberty
1: free market and individual liberty uh, now how do you mean uh
0: so is well is what's the connection between the two is personal i mean is personal liberty of, uh is it possible without a free market or does a free market you know is, is it a necessity
1: um, that, that's a very good point. I, I th- here's what I would say to you is that I think people can prosper without personal freedom as long as they have economic freedom. But I th- that's very interesting. The reverse could they could they prosper um, if they had individual freedom but no market freedom? I, I say not. I think there's probably lots of parts of the world where people. Fr- um, have a fair amount of individual freedom, but they don't have the market freedom. You've got to be able to serve others and be served um, without intervention to get the full effect of it.
0: Well, I think the, the, the first point, maybe the first point that you made uh, answered the question, because you, you said that you'd rather have you know, a, a, free, a free market and be worse off, or have economic freedom and be worse off than not have economic freedom and be better off.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I I would always be for this no matter what, just because I think people should be free to do what they want to do. And and that would, I think the mistake very often that those on my side make is they say, well, look at what happens when you cut taxes, you get 3.2% GDP growth, or look at what happens, um, you get this impact. And and I think that's a mistake. It's not that that's not true. I think there's a lot of evidence that economic freedom correlates with economic growth. I think it's, it's blindingly obvious, but I still think that we should say, you know, people should be free to do to, to do what they want. And, uh, and that's where I would leave it.
0: Well, I, I, And it's, it's interesting because I've, the thinking that I've had in regards to, you know, the, I would say the protagonist against uh, economic freedom is there, there's this kind of utopian view of how things should be, right? And that, you know, because economic freedom, oftentimes, you know, there's disruption that, that you know, we're not able to achieve that, you know, kind of utopian, utopian feel. And therefore, you know, economic, the free market or economic freedoms uh, are discounted or, you know, they don't have as much merit uh, as, you know, maybe a, a more centrally planned economy.
1: Well, I guess I'd like to see the examples of where a centrally planned economy has worked out better for the individual. Um, color me skeptical. Um, is that to say that I, um, you know, I think ultimately it's people who drive economic growth. If we want to get into whether economic freedom always trumps, um, trumps other things, um, there might be an argument there. I mean, I'll give you an obvious example. Uh, probably New York and the state of New York and the state of California are probably not the most economically free parts of the U S but they're the most prosperous parts. Um, I would say that probably Alabama is more economically free than either one, but Alabama doesn't come close to either one in terms of prosperity. And so there's this, what, what I always like to point out to people is that it's not everything. Low taxes aren't everything. Ultimately the people are the ones who drive economic progress and, and lots of pro- productive people in New York and California who are taxed more than they are in Alabama, but they still get a lot done. And so it's not everything. And so my point is, is I just want people to be free.
0: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fascinating point because you're, you're right. You you would think now there are people that are leaving, you know, they're leaving those, those, uh, those States, right. Because of higher, higher taxes, uh, higher expenses, but at the same time, you know, so much of the productivity, of, of our economy happens in those uh, those jurisdictions. That's an it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Uh, but yeah, my the, the point I was trying to lead to is just the, the, my thoughts around uh, the you know why there is such a, a, a negative and, and maybe it's, maybe it's not as negative as I may think it is uh, view of uh, of economic freedom uh, and that there's this kind of utopian view that people have uh, that they're trying to trying to achieve through. You know, whether it's uh, uh essentially planned or economic freedom, and somehow because economic uh freedom, a free market, hasn't produced that utopian society, okay, that you know, somehow essentially planned one will. And and that just comes from you know the different different remarks in regards to you know just how you know certain you know what's considered free markets have failed in in uh, uh in in the past.
1: Yeah, well again, I guess to that I would say I don't buy too much the idea that people have a really negative view of free markets. And, and I don't think, I mean, I'd be curious, you may have examples. I want to hear about these examples of free markets failing. Um, I guess I'm not buying that. Now, of course, you and I both could come out with myriad examples of centrally planned economies failing, failing impressively. And so if there is that question um, that's a fairly easy one to win. All I'm saying is I think it's a mistake for our side to tie itself up into, well, if we do this, we get results. No, 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 the, good, the ultimate result is freedom. And mm-hmm. so if you have that, and, and I think that's the way the founding fathers saw it, is that, you know, notice how with the Constitution, there's nothing about economic growth in there. The founders just felt that people should be free. And I think they presumed based on this individual freedom that there'd be lots of prosperity. And of course there was, and there is. But I think it's a mistake to get into, well, you get this much economic growth. Well, that's, that, that's a tautology. Free people are going
0: to prosper. And perhaps it's just a, it's a, it's a, the, the, the definition is flawed, right? Because I would say, you know, the numerous, you know, quotes about, you know, 2008, 2009, look at what the free market did to our society, right? It's, it's that. So it, it may be a, a disconnect as far as a definition of, of what economic freedom is or what a free market is.
1: Well, but it's also, that wasn't, it's a mistake, I think, to call what happened in 2008 an example of free markets. Um, I think that was a classic example of what happens when governments, in this case the Bush administration, intervene in what's healthy. We've got to remember that recessions are a very bullish sign. So are market crashes they're merely a sign of an economy cleansing itself, Mm -hmm. um, cleansing itself of misuses of labor, uh, bad businesses, bad habits developed, uh, lousy investments. And so when you let a correction or recession run its course, you are setting the stage for the rebound because that's the sign of an economy fixing itself, cleansing out all the bad stuff. If In 2008, if there's no bailout of Bear Stearns, I'm sorry, there is no, quote, financial crisis, which wasn't financial. There's was a crisis of an inter- intervention back in 2008. That was a government error. If Bear Stearns is allowed to go, investors are shocked. Probably Lehman Brothers goes the next week, but precisely because there's no expectation that Lehman will be saved, investors are prepared for it. Lehman was only earth shaking insofar as the federal government intervened and intervened and created the expectation that it would be saved. Amid that, I'll point out that you also had the Bush administration uh, uh, banning short selling on 900 different financial stocks. Yep. Now, if you want to pour gasoline on a fire already created by government, ban the discovery of prices in a free market. <laughs> yeah. That's going to terrify investors on a level, well, we saw it in 2008. And so I think it's dangerous, and I'm not saying you are, when people, when people say, oh, yeah, well, 2008, yeah, well, 2008 is an example of what happens when governments intervene. In this case, it was the Bush administration, as I have never hidden from this. In my first book, Popular Economics, I tied the financial crisis, and I say it wasn't financial, to the Bush administration's errors. If they had done nothing, there is no crisis.
0: Well, I think it was a co- it was a compounding of the same of this the same thing, right? There's, you know, the the idea of uh, derivatives and uh, also just you know the repeal of Glass Steagall. Uh, I mean, there's a there's a number of things that you know kind of compounded on one another that they caused the, the yeah, but, crisis, but, and that's not economic no. freedom. Pretend. But
1: that, I mean, Yeah, that was definitely not economic freedom. And, and let's be clear, Glass-Steagall had nothing to do with what happened in 2008. I, I implicit there is that failures of financial institutions would cause a crisis. Well, but based on that, Silicon Valley is in constant crisis because just about every business started out there fails. But the main thing is, if you look at the banks, the financial institutions that were solvent back in 08, They were the ones that were hybrid bank and investment banks. It was the ones that hadn't availed themselves of the ability to combine one way or the other that were in big trouble. And so, again, I think it's a mistake to say that Glass-Steagall had some role in it. No, it didn't. Failure is healthy, always, always, always. The Bush administration um, intervened in failure Mm -hmm. and by, by nature caused a crisis. Without that intervention, there is no crisis.
0: Yeah, and and so maybe I'm I just have my history wrong then because I, I, I uh, thought that uh, Glass Steagall essentially you know pr- uh, prevented kind of the in- invest, investment bank and uh, and depository bank type of uh, I don't to use collusion but uh, the you know the ability for uh, you know investment banks to to lend on. Uh, lend on deposits. So, and, and maybe I'm just totally, totally uh, mis- misinformed. Yeah, I mean, but let's remember, but the rest of the world, not the money no. but a part of it.
1: No, because remember, the rest of the world never had to abide Glass Steagall, and so why didn't the rest of the world collapse? Let's remember it was the hybrid. It was J.P. Morgan, a bank investment bank. It was Bank America, Bank of America, a bank investment bank that were able to save the singular institutions. Glass-Steagall had nothing to do with what happened. Bear Stearns was just an investment bank. Um, those were the ones that needed to be saved. And so, no. And, and remember also that, again, the rest of the world didn't suffer under something as ridiculous as Glass-Steagall
0: and and it 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 didn't implode as a result. Yeah, and I and I'm yeah, maybe I'm just mis, misinformed. I, I mean, I thought well, the ripple effect of what happens in the US, you know, affects the entire world, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the wor- a lot of the world whether it's, you know, China or Europe, I mean, there's a lot of investment in in the US, right, even though they weren't directly tied to it. Uh, but anyway, that I, I wasn't setting this up as, you know, the the topic of conversation because I was I was trying to, you know, create a platform uh for the, the topic at hand, right, which is your you know your your latest book that has uh been released uh recently which is the end of work and and the reason why I wanted to set up the way that I, that I did is to kind of get an idea of what your what your perspective uh perspective on things are in, in relation to other you know other issues uh and really take an issue that is you know I, I think is fascinating, which is just how quickly you know our society is evolving and you know the the belief you know i know a lot of these tech tech uh uh you know guys have come out and talked about you know the automation and how robots will you know displace you know millions and millions of workers and then the, their solution to that displacement is you know some sort of you know universal basic income but that's not that's not necessarily your necessarily your your take uh so I I'd love to maybe pivot if that's if that's okay. Unless you have a a, a, a comment, absolutely. Up- uh, but I'd love to pivot to that and kind of what you know what caused the uh, the idea behind the book and uh, you know what the premise and 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 uh, and outcome that you're hoping readers achieve.
1: Well, it's a great question. What caused it um, was going to a Fleetwood Mac concert. I'm not a big music guy, but I I watched, we were invited to the concert by some friends and we sat kind of in the back of the arena and that proved rewarding because we watched the uh, video screen. That's, that was the only way to see the musicians. It was kind of a revelation to me that night. I looked at just the the pure joy in their eyes. And so we went to the concert, because we thought they're going to retire. So we might as well say that we saw them. And, uh, but watching them, I thought they're not going to retire anytime soon. These people are in love with what they're doing. When it comes to instruments and singing, they are geniuses. And so I started thinking about that. If they tried to do what I do, they wouldn't be very smart. If if Lindsey Buckingham tried to do what Warren Buffett does, he would be a failure. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because Warren Buffett, put an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. He said, what if the, the economy were sports-based? He said, it doesn't matter what kind of instruction or training I would have, I would be a failure in that. And so I thought, and so all of this came together for me. I said, wait a second, we're looking at intelligence all wrong. And we're looking at work ethic all wrong. No one lacks intelligence or work ethic. What they've historically lacked are ways to showcase their intelligence and work ethic in the workplace. Think about 150 years ago. To just to give you an example, of this 150 years ago, when you were born, you pretty much knew what you were going to do for life. There weren't options really. You were once you were able, you were going to work six days a week on a farm. Yep. It didn't matter if you loved it or hated it. That, that's what you were going to do. And then these robots came along, labor-saving devices, things like fertilizer, more important, the tractor. Biggest job destroyers in the history of mankind simply because a world in which work was defined by creating food, suddenly people didn't need to do that. There, you could produce a lot more food with less people. But this put people in bread lines? No, it freed them up to focus their genius on things that they were actually good at. And so we cured diseases, we created cars, airplanes, um, computers, the internet. And so all I'm saying is what has people fearful is what should have them thrilled. Automation is going to destroy all sorts of work that's unnecessary and allow people to focus their unique intelligence on actual work that reinforces their skills. And so that's that's what the book is about.
0: Is there an economic term for that?
1: You know, I don't know. I'll tell you this in the book. My economic term for it is Tamney's Law. Um, I am making the argument, and I, and I slightly paraphrase that as the economy evolves, more and more people escape laziness mm-hmm. simply because they are able to do work that elevates their unique skills. Mm-hmm. So this what is, runs counter to the popular view that prosperity makes us lazy. No, 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 no. Yeah. Prosperity is what enables the creation of all sorts of work that we never imagined. Uh, people should be thrilled simply because the destruction of old forms of work are going to allow them to
0: specialize. So is that, Doing all right, so is that, is it the, like the creative destruction kind of Schumpeter principle? Uh,
1: um, yes, certainly. Schumpeter's principle is that is that in an economy there's constant replacement of old ways. To some degree, that's true, but it's kind of like this: um, you and you and I working alone on a desert island would probably starve pretty quickly. <laughs> but you and I working together could specialize, couldn't yeah. we? We could. We, I, I could say you do what you do best, I do what I do best, we, and we maybe survive. All robots are. They're not putting us out of work. They're just allowing us to specialize more, much in the way that he, when we divide up work with humans, they allow us to specialize. They take off of our plate the work that's least elevating or amplifying of our skills and allow us to focus on what we do best. I mean, imagine how poor we would be without the tractor. If, we, if it were about jobs, it'd be simple. We just abolish the tractor, the car, and the ATM machine and the computer, Everyone in the U.S. would be working, and we'd be incredibly poor, but we'd all be working. Yep. All automation says is that we're never going to run out of things to do. Automation will just take off of our hands the things that we'd rather not do.
0: So, th- so what's the argument? What's the argument for universal basic income? what's the What's the premise behind you know why a, you know smart in, you know, intelligent individuals have come out and said? you know, it's going to go so quick that the displacement is going to be painful and we need, you know, to create a floor for people. Like, where where does, where is that argument flawed?
1: Um, it's, let me say two things about that. For one, I don't think the proponents of it believe it. What I do think is that they realize that as technology continues to advance, they are going to get incredibly rich. And so they're looking to preempt government poor government treatment of them by the government by saying oh no we're see we're sympathetic we're kind people we want to have a universal basic income i think the universal basic income is a terrible idea imagine giving politicians the right to basically compete with one another to see who can give someone a bigger check Mm -hmm. with the money of others I also think it's going to be totally unnecessary. All this automation isn't going to put us out of work. It's going to make it so that more and more people are experts at work. And so there's not going to be a need for it. And and my honest belief is that even if you instituted it, the future is going to be so grand that people wouldn't want it in the first place simply because there are going to be such better ways to make money and they're going to be, these ways will be elevating their unique skills.
0: And that's you know, and, and I, I would say that there are, you know, the, the future can be defined based on what, you know, exists right now. But at the same time, you always have that, you know, for lack of a better term, that X, that X factor, which is, you know, once there is displacement, you know, human, human beings just don't sit idle. I mean, they're going to go figure out what to do. And I think in that environment, you know, is it, it? It may be painful, but I think that pain is good because it really gets people to elevate their game and to innovate and to you know improve improve their improve their lifestyle. Um, so well, I I think you're so right.
1: I, I, I want to discuss that. I think you're so right. that People won't just sit around. But I think also what you have to remember is the dip- displacement isn't nearly as painful as you think. Where it's painful is in the places that are not embracing this kind of change in advance, uh, you know, let, let's be clear. A city or country never dies or state never dies because a factory closes or a business departs. That's the norm. Look at New York City. Look at Los Angeles in the 1920s that New York was one and when LA was four in terms of most advanced manu- in terms of a manufacturing economy. Neither is today. They're not dead cities as a result. What kills a city is the departure of talent. And this is important because if we try to prop up the status quo or the past, that's what kills a city. That's, it's the lack of displacement that kills a city simply because the most talented people who attract all the investment, who create all the companies and exciting jobs, do not want to do factory work. They don't want to work in steel mills. And so if you prop up the past, you drive away the very people who create all the exciting opportunities. And then I would add, look at Silicon Valley. It employs everyone. It's not, I'm I'm horrible technologically, but the beauty of Silicon Valley, the place where jobs are destroyed the quickest is it doesn't matter your skill. There's an opportunity for you. Silicon Valley, Valley employs yoga instructors, personal trainers, baristas, lawyers, doctors, Sommeliers, chefs, Silicon Valley is where all the jobs are being destroyed so rapidly. Yet everyone is employed at exciting work. Contrast that with Aliquippa PA, or Flint, Michigan. Yeah, they're stuck in the past and they're employing no one.
0: That's a great. That's a great point. Yeah, there's always going to be you know you have the primary market, then secondary and tertiary markets as well that serve the primary market and there's always opportunities especially with in, with innovation so one of the you know I, I interviewed he's like I think he's a presidential candidate he's a, he's running for president named Andrew Yang and he wrote wrote a book called The War on Normal People and it's basically the opposite of your book and it was a great discussion you know it was a great discussion obviously we we disagreed on many on many points um, but uh, but in the end his his thing was it's going to go so fast okay that it's almost going to be you know even if it's temporary you know, he was arguing that it's going to be a necessity unless you're going to have, have social social unrest. And I, so, maybe if you want to uh, answer that and and follow up with the, with the answering the question, how can you know individuals navigate themselves uh, through a rapidly you know a rapidly evolving environment that they may find themselves in?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is that Yang gets it exactly backwards, and, and it staggers me that he could get it so backwards given. <laughs> The truth about history. What we've seen throughout history is that technology by its very name destroys jobs. Again, the tractor and fertilizer were the two of the biggest job destroyers in history. The car destroyed countless jobs. The computer. Do you want to discuss how many jobs the computer and the internet destroyed? But they never put people out of work. Implicit in Yang's argument, which is just stunning that someone could make an argument so obtuse based on history, is that we're going to run out of things to cure and fix. (laughs) Oh, really? But see, people are dying all the time of cancer. We haven't scratched the surface in terms of our potential, and that's the beauty of technology and economic growth, is that it frees up talented minds from doing what they used to have to do, and allows them to focus on better and better and better this notion that it's going to put people out of work defies common sense. It's just going to allow them to do better work that's going to constantly improve the human condition. Implicit in Yang's argument is that the creation of the tractor just caused everyone to starve. No, no. It just enabled fewer people to make the food that we needed so that we could focus on better, more important things. The, the robots that terrify him are what go- are going to lead to cancer cures. Such that it's no longer a disease are going to lead to a life that people, people don't have to worry about heart disease. They're going to wipe out poverty, not put people in poverty. Show me one country in the history of mankind's existence that was impoverished by technology. Yeah, technology is the biggest job destroyer by definition it's where jobs are destroyed most rapidly that opportunity is greatest
0: so so in the i'm assuming you you address in, this in the book but how how can an individual whether it's listening to this or reading your book like what are what are some of the steps they can take to you know navigate themselves i, I think under, having a, a philosophical foundation where you know disruption sometimes is good uh, you know robots and evolution and displacement of, of, of jobs is good once you have that I mean what, what are some of the next steps to you know pay attention and navigate you know navigate the, through these you know these waters
1: well one way to, to a degree you don't have to worry about it my point is is that if you're existing if you can live and breathe the opportunities are going to come to you in this evolving world, there will be endless opportunities, ones that kind of elevate your unique skills in a world that's that's destroying the, the the low value work of the past. And so still, my argument in the book, what I say to people, what I say is that happiness is hard. And by that, I mean that I don't think you can be happy unless you're working. And I don't think you can be happy unless you work really hard. Mm -hmm. but it's hard to consistently do that if you're doing something you hate. And that's why the future is so bright simply because all this automation is going to free us from a lot of the jobs that we despised in the past in much the same way that fertilizer and the tractor freed so many people from the daily six day, well six day a week misery of working on a farm. And so it's, it's not something that people need to be afraid of, but you know, in my case, look, I, I wanted to be a writer in the worst way. Um, I wanted to write about economics. I had a belief that I had something to offer, but it's not as so though I just oh, one day I became a writer and I had I, it was I could pay my bills. In my case, and I describe this in the book. I tell my story. I uh, worked a job as as a fundraiser for a nonprofit to pay the bills, so that I could read and write at night and on weekends. <laughs> And then gradually over time, I was able to transition into what I wanted to do. Now, you know, other people will have an easier path. Some will have a harder path. I had had to be demoted a few times. I had to fail to get to this point. Mm -hmm. But the broad thing is, unlike at any time in history, more and more people, as I show in the book, will, if they have a passion or something that they really love doing, they'll be able to turn it into a career. And that's amazing. And that's a result of all this technological advance that has led to amazing wealth creation.
0: Well, also, I mean, I, I don't have any examples that are that are coming to mind, but you know, I, I would say, you know, the the uh, the concert that you you know, went to, the Fleetwood Mac concert, or you know, any any band or any any artist, you know, there's a pivotal moment, and typically it was caused by by uh, you know fear, pain, or or some pivotal moment that caused them to think a little bit differently. And and I think those are uh, those are healthy moments, especially for our, our growth, where it allows you to, you know, solve, solve the issue at hand. And I think the gravitation is always towards something that you uh, that you like to do or you feel you know you have a talent or a natural ability to do. Uh, but oftentimes the you know the painful moment isn't uh, isn't there and if it's not there it may not allow you to you know transition into a uh, you know a, a meaningful career or meaningful meaningful job and so i look at the disruption and i love disruption i think disruption you know is always followed by innovation it's kind of the you know i call it the Mowgli Mowgli principle i don't know if you have kids but you know in the jungle book you know Mowgli, what separates him from you know the bear or the lion or whatever right it's his ability to think through problems and solve them Right, and I think human beings—you have to have that environment in order to exercise. You know what our what our uh, mind can can really do, and if you don't have that environment, you know sometimes you won't ever uh, you won't have the opportunity.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I would just say again, the disruption really only occurs in the places where there's no disruption. I mean, again, if you go to Seattle right now where technology reigns supreme and so old forms of work are being destroyed all the time. Jobs are endless for people of all sorts of skills. If you go to places stuck in the past, if you go to Aliquippa, PA, try to find an interesting job. And you're not. And so so I just, I I think it's important to stress that this disruption that people talk about, this rapid change that supposedly causes pain, no, 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 that's backwards it's where there isn't rapid change that pain is greatest. And the reason for that is obvious. Again, talented people don't want to be where that we're in parts of the country or world that are stuck in the past because there's very little opportunity there.
0: And maybe I, maybe that was the wrong way of explaining it. Cause you know, what I, what I intended to, to say was, you know, if a person is laid off, let's a truck driver, because you know, technology now has trucks being driven by, you know, robots and, tech, you know, and technology that they're in that position now to make a decision that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to make had they continued to drive the truck. So that's, that's more the uh, point. Yeah, yeah. And, and
1: it's a good point, and, and I would just say to that, though, that in most instances, if you look throughout history, in most instances, long before they're laid off, thanks to technologies with truck drivers as in suddenly self driving technology renders them renders them un, uh, no longer economically viable mm-hmm. it 's usually the case long before that happens that market signals say, "Oh yeah, trucking doesn 't pay as well as this, this, and this." Mm-hmm. Technology, by definition, destroys work, but in the process, it's creating all sorts of new work for all sorts of skill sets. And so I think what you're going to, if we get to the point, and I think we will, where truck drivers, trucks are are operated by robots, you'll see most truckers depart that industry long before being laid off.
0: Hmm. And and, and who knows what the future is going to hold, but I would assume that if it's going to go quickly... You know maybe there isn't enough runway for them to make that decision, and typically people won't make a decision you know to change careers or to change jobs unless the pain is you know the pain the pain of changing right is uh is less than uh, or sorry great uh greater than uh the pain of uh staying the same so well
1: have you ever left a job for a higher paying job um, Have you ever quit a job because something better came along
0: i yeah I've been yeah, for of forever, course right? you have. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Of yeah. course you have. Well, you know, you're just you're just a normal human being. Um, you know, if you, let's go back to eighteen late, late 1840s. Three hundred thousand people from around the world uh, found their way to the Bay Area, look, trying to mine gold. Yeah. you know, people run to opportunity all That's the time, and, and so that this this idea that oh, suddenly I was hit by a freight train, now where that more often happens is that a company gets into trouble. And of course, suddenly there's, there's layoffs and, and recessions occur understood, but economic change, what you have to realize, and this is in the U S the economic change happens all the time. And so people hear about opportunity. Oh, we hear there's opportunity in Seattle. And so they move. And so what, what you have to remember is it's easy nowadays, 150 years ago, if you heard about an opportunity in Southern California, you had to cross, you had to risk your life crossing the country
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> on roads that weren't paved. Nowadays, even if you're desperately poor, you get on a, an air conditioned bus and get there. And so let's not pretend like this is, it's not nearly as disruptive as we think or as painful as you think. People quit and get better opportunities all the time. That's, that's just, that's what we are. And let, let's be clear. That is an effect of the fact that the nature of work is constantly changing in the United States. A pl- classic example is the internet. When I got out of college, the Net- Netscape hadn't even gone public yet. The internet realistically didn't even exist. I knew nothing about computers, but everything I do today is related to computers. I had no training in it. Everything I do is internet related. Well, I got into that because that's where the opportunity was. And so it's it's not like I'm abnormal. It's, I didn't have any skills in that area, but you just learn, you adapt, and it's in the parts of the world where there isn't this constant change, where people are most in, in pain, where jobs are being destroyed the most, the quickest, is where the opportunity is greatest. The pain is where the change is not occurring. I I, I can't stress that enough. That what you're describing is in fact what would happen in a place like Aliquippa or Flint, Michigan, not in a place where jobs are actually rapidly being destroyed. You know,
0: no, those are great points. I've actually not thought about it from that, uh, from that from that angle. And, you know, the observation I've, I've had, and I don't know if there's any you know, empirical data behind this, but, you know, the observation of, of uh, our, you know, society being a lot more uh, mobile, right, traveling a lot more, uh, the convenience of traveling is becoming easier and easier. Uh, whereas like growing up, I never went anywhere, right? We went wherever we went, we went by car right now. I think it's more mm-hmm. feasible for people to relocate. And I, and I think, you know, maybe one of the impediments to relocation and relocating in the past is just, you know, the fear of leading loved ones because of Facebook, because of, you know, video technology. I mean, people are more willing to do that. These, these days, I wonder if that adds to the, you know, adds to the, the dynamic of, you know, this being a, an exciting opportunity for everyone.
1: Oh, it's, it, it's such an important thing. I think in, in we, we, always, we often hear about forgotten parts of the United States. And my response is, wait a second. We descend from people who literally risked their lives crossing oceans yeah. and borders in order to get here. And they got here to a place where they arguably didn't know the language and their ability to be mobile was incredibly limited. Yeah. I mean, there weren't paved roads or anything. And so you think, you think about what they did, and even then, Alexis de Tocqueville, when he traveled the U.S. in the, in the 19th century, said Americans are restless in abundance hmm. You realize what a big statement that was, because in, in Europe, people stayed in the same place for generations, yet Americans are running around looking for opportunity. Yeah. And so I hear about forgotten Americans today, when wherever they are, prosperity is not far away, and by, by extension, opportunity. I say, you've got to be kidding me! All this change that we're fearful of—that's where the opportunity is. That's where the prosperity is. And you're a bus ride away, in the worst case scenario.
0: No, it's a fa- this is a fascinating discussion. I mean that those are such they're such great they're such great points. And maybe as we kind of conclude our our interview, uh, what what would you say is the 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 obstacles that confront this theory in relation to how to handle uh the the technological change that's at this point inevitable
1: um i would say this is where i get a little bit policy oriented let me be clear the book is all about how unlike at any time in history If you love football, you can make a life and remunerative remunerative career out of it. If you love shopping, if you love shopping, you increasingly can. If if your passion is wine or food, you know, in the 1970s, if you if you were a cook, people looked down on you. It wasn't even a professional classification in the 70s. Chef was not a profession, whereas nowadays it's something that we do as an alternative to being a lawyer, doctor, banker, you name it. And so I'm describing all these forms that, you know, nowadays there aren't just video game players who are professionals, but there are video game coaches.
0: So lucrative does that become industry behind multiple industries. That that Yeah.
1: all these jobs that we could never have imagined when you and I were kids, but if we had told people we were going to do, they would have had, they would have really literally wanted us to be committed. And so now they're happening. And so I'm making the point that look at how the world's changed. If you have a passion and you discover it guaranteed, you're going to find, you can find work that's related to your, this passion. And what a beautiful story about where we are. Okay. So that, that that's what the book is about, but there is pause at the end. Look, there are no companies and no jobs without investment first. Sorry, we can't get no economic school, no ideology, no, no political theorists can get around that truth. And so I make the basic point. I'm, I'm a, I can't stand Republicans or Democrats. I make the basic point that if you have smaller government and less taxes, there's going to be more investment in new, in in experiments that lead to technological advances that lead to all sorts of work that we never imagined. I also say that the rich are crucial to economic progress for the money they invest, but also for the money they spend. Let's not forget that the first computer cost over a million dollars. The first laser printer cost seventeen thousand dollars. The first mobile phone that was brick sized and had a half hour of battery life cost four thousand dollars. The rich are venture buyers. They buy things, and if they prove useful, that's a, that's a signal to entrepreneurs for what they should mass produce. And I you bring all these examples up is think about what a small economy we would be without the computer, without the smartphone. Without all of these technological advances, the rich enjoyed first. And my point is, if we're a smaller economy, your ability to do work that reflects your passions is greatly reduced. We know this because if you talk to your parents or you talk to, talk to them about what their parents, their options for their parents, they were much, much less when our economy was smaller. Whereas nowadays the kids growing up, their opportunities are endless, and so you want economic growth. That's what enables work that doesn't feel like work.
0: You made an interesting point that in that statement, which I haven't thought of b- before, but you you made the point that you know the the rich, if there's more money, you know, smaller government means you know obviously less taxes, more money in the hands of those that are you know creating a good amounts of income. But when they make investment, they I think the, it, the, the nature of that investment is different uh, than if uh, it was a government, you know, backing a solar company or backing a car company or backing whatever, right? Where you have these individuals who have you know, proven themselves by the remuneration of money that they have, that they know how to analyze a financial statement. They know how to, you know, determine a good finan- or a good uh, leadership team for uh, this company or that company or this idea or that idea. And I never thought of that before. Is that what you meant by that? Ooh,
1: yeah, I meant by that, but I, I want to stress something bigger than that. Do you, you know, the a- actor is Ashton Kutcher?
0: Yeah, of yeah. course.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, so he's very rich and he is, he, is he, he's a big venture capital investor. And he was interviewed recently on a podcast and he said, You have to understand, to do what I do, to invest as I do, you have to be willing to lose money on just about every single one of your investments yeah. in the hope that one or two cover all your losses. Mm -hmm. As in, you've got to be willing to lose a lot of money. That's what's so crucial about the rich. They uniquely can invest in companies and they have money to lose that the average person does not. And as a result, we get progress. Silicon Valley is built on endless failure. 90% of the companies funded out there die. And so if you go throughout history, Who was it that funded Thomas Edison? It was J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. His father thought he was nuts. The light bulb, he had money to lose. Howard Hughes inherited Hughes' tool and die, and he takes that money out to Los Angeles and funds the creation of the evolution of aviation. Who do you think funded Silicon Valley, without which would be an incredibly small economy? It was the heirs to Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, and Tip's families so rich that they had money to lose. And so the rich... Without them, there is no economic progress because they have the means to take risks on companies that will fail the majority of the time. You add to that also that the rich are the venture buyers. They can buy things that are wildly expensive that anyone else couldn't afford, but in doing so, they signal to entrepreneurs what would be popular in the future if they mass produce it. And so the rich had the means to buy computers that cost over a million dollars, laser printers that cost 17000 Imagine where we'd be without them. We would be much poorer. And as a result, the ability for the average person to pursue a passion on the way to a career would be greatly reduced. Again, without the rich, we more of us would be farming and doing something that we hate, but that we have to do.
0: So what would you say are the key differences, you know, maybe set aside the the you know, the principle of taxation, but what, what are the maybe key principles between the rich making an investment in, you know, a business or technology uh, and, you know, a government, a government funding it?
1: Oh, it's a great question. And I'm so glad you asked. Here's the difference. It's, it's not that governments are bad or that people in government are inherently bad, but here's the, here's the crucial difference. And this is why Warren Buffett would be an awful investor if he were Senator Buffett. With government, there are no failures. Your bad ideas will be funded forever simply because you've got an unlimited flow of taxpayer dollars. Contrast that with Silicon Valley. Bad ideas die and they die very quickly and they die at a rate of 90% plus. Hmm. And so because of that, bad ideas aren't funded forever such that people and human capital and financial capital and equipment aren't misused forever. The failure happens and the, and the, these crucial assets are released to what are perceived to be better opportunities. Failures happen quickly. Failure is how you progress, but with government there are no failures. Bad ideas are funded forever. And so that's the difference. And you could, of course argue that if you're talented, you'd never work as an investor for the government because there's too much money in the private sector. But the main thing is it doesn't matter who's doing it. If your bad ideas never die, you can't progress. Well, Silicon Valley is not rich because all of its businesses succeed. It's rich precisely because just about every business funded out there fails. And with that, you get progress. Now,
0: hmm. well, it's a fascinating, fascinating idea. I'm, I'm excited to read your book. I mean, we'll obviously we're going to uh, post links of how you can, how you can purchase it. Uh, is, do you have an audio book as well?
1: Uh, yes, you can buy it on Kindle and, uh, and uh, all sorts of different ways. But, uh, Yeah, uh, you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. Uh, The End of Work, it's a very optimistic book for parents and kids. For parents who are worried about their kids, what I show is that if you can find a passion, doesn't matter what your education is, doesn't matter if you go to college at all, you will have a chance to succeed simply because hard work combined with passion is what will enable success. And then for kids, it, it hopefully will cause them to think about work in a different way. Don't look at work in a 20th century mindset that you have to do certain things to succeed. What we're seeing in this modern world is that the path to achievement and the path to unique jobs is endless. And that's what's so exciting about the present and future.
0: So do you you go into, because that's one of my, one of my, you know, because I I have kids, so uh, they're in school. I mean, do you, do you address, you know, just education in general and how the future will be different than maybe what they're being prepared for right now?
1: Uh, yes, I do in chapter three, and I make the argument that education is just not that important. Um, <laughs> awesome. Th- this, notion, th- this notion that school can prepare you for the working world is laughable.
0: Yeah.
1: Because implicit there is that professors could see into the future. Well, if you could see into the future what the future of work was going to be, you wouldn't be working as a professor. You'd be making <laughs> billions in the private sector. And so, by definition, school is teaching you about the past. I'm not saying don't go. People go to school for all sorts of reasons, but don't go on the assumption that it's going to prepare you for the working world, because it is not going to. And so, I use music as an example to make that point, but the broader thing is, toward the end of the chapter, I, I showcase China. China is easily one of the least educated societies on earth. Yet it's become very rich or relatively rich in modern times, not because of education. Its it's Citizenry is broadly uneducated, but because the people were suddenly free. And my point is that freedom is what drives prosperity, education. The U.S. has all sorts of great schools because it is a rich country. It is not a rich country because of those great schools. Soon enough, China will have amazing universities too. Rich people love to donate a lot to schools. But it's not going to drive your success. And this is important for kids. We would, you and I would look askance at anyone who would say to someone, well, you can't make it because you're a woman or because you're the wrong color. Well, I think we should look every bit as cruelly at someone and meanly at someone who would say, you can't make it because you didn't get a degree. Mm -hmm. Why on earth would you say that? It's wrong and it has nothing to do with reality what allows success is freedom education oh gosh that's just that's what rich people do we're a rich country lots of us are educated so what
0: <laughs> no my wife my wife gets after me because i i always tell my kids you know when when they get their grades if they you know happen to get a, a, a poor grade i'm like it doesn't matter you know did you it, what matters is did you try and if you didn't like it then then doesn't your grade doesn't matter it's more of like, you know, the principle, principle of trying, experimenting, and if it wasn't natural, then, but I, but I would say, yeah, it, it's, there's this, you know, this box that the kids are, uh, they're, you know, they're conditioned to fit in, and, you know, there's, I, I would argue, there's so many different aspects of children these days, uh, of their intelligence that's superior than their teacher, than their teachers, uh, because cool. really expl- it's never really enhanced, unfortunately, uh, with, the, obviously, with some exceptions
1: yeah like you know we're we're lucky enough to live at the time where we don't have to worry about that it was education was always overrated look, I'm not against it I've got a child I, I hope she goes to college it's a it's an amazing experience, but the idea that she needs it to succeed or to learn things that will help her in the working world, oh please, that's just not serious.
0: <laughs> I hundred percent agree all right one more question they'll they'll let you go john uh so last question is kind of a you know just out of curiosity, like what's maybe a a conversation you've had uh, recently where the person you were having the conversation with, you know, a light bulb went off, right? They had a a paradigm shift. They saw the way in which you, you know, were, were thinking and started to agree with you, you know, maybe not having the same opinion uh, at the beginning of the conversation or it happened to you. Ah, That's a very good question.
1: Um, I'll tell you this more. What it's been is, When I tell people what this is about, they say, oh my gosh, you're nuts. (laughs) And then I start describing it. And then everyone I've described it to has since said, oh yeah, well, you know what? I've got a nephew who's made a career out of rehabilitating old Air Jordan shoes and selling them for (laughs) $4,000. And then you start getting emails from them. Did you see this? The NBA just staged a draft. But for video game players, it's NBA 2K. (laughs) And so now from people who who thought, oh, what are you talking about? They are now my source of all these interesting jobs um, that they never knew existed before. Because when you start to look around you, you say, hey, wait a second. Whereas 150 years ago, you kind of had one of two odds of working on the farm for life now, look at all the different ways you can earn a living. And so, look, I'm happy to say it's been eye-opening for some. There are people high up in media, I won't name names, who've just dismissed me out of hand, wouldn't even have me on their shows. They say, what you're describing is ridiculous. And so that's been an eye-opener too, but um, this is a debate I welcome. I think this is what the future is going to look like. I can't tell you what the jobs are going to be. If I could, I'd be a billionaire, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that I so envy your kids because the world they are going to rise up into is going to reward their skills in ways that are, it's it's going to amaze you. And it's probably going to be an adjustment for you. your kids. One of them will might say to you, I'm going to do something that you'll say, wait a second, that's not a job, but they'll prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be wonderful for you in that way.
0: And it will probably be something that, you know, we have no clue about right now, what it is, what it means, how it's defined, how you monetize it. I mean, there's, there's so much innovation going on right now in the creation creation of, a, of, of you know, humankind is, uh, it's just, it's part of our wiring. And I, I think that the environment that we're in right now is, it's an exciting time to be alive. alive. It's, there's nothing really to be, uh, to be afraid of. Uh, I mean, there are certain, oh, certain things, but it's just part of, it's just part of humanity.
1: There's a, there's a that show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Uh, I didn't see the show, but again, another one of the converts told me about it. I'll leave you this: He was watching it, and it was they had young kids on competing on the show, and so they asked one genius young kid, "So, what are you going to do when you grow up?" And he said, "My job hasn't been invented yet." <laughs>
0: That's exactly. Awesome. That's so awesome. smart because he nailed it. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, John, it's been fascinating. I wish you the best of luck with your book. I mean, we'll, we'll get the word out. We'll, we'll make sure that we post all, all of your you know, social media connections and website, uh, as well as the organizations you're associated with. And, uh, and good luck. I mean, you're, the mission you're on, you know, it's a, it's a task, right? Because I, I can understand that uh, there are probably some, some of those that are in the upper echelon that, that, that will refute this message to, their, to the grave. Uh, but I believe that, you know, this is the future and this is the way to, to, to approach it. So thank you for writing the book and, uh, thank you for for going out there, you know, facing, facing some adversity sometimes getting your message out.
1: Absolutely. It's all worth it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. What a great interview. uh, Congratulations on what you're doing, because you're doing a great job.
0: Well, I appreciate it. Appreciate it, John. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you. uh, Talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us
1: as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.